News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Coming up at the end of this hour, I guess, and so in about 45, 50 minutes or so, we're going to learn more about what the Bank of Canada has in store for us in terms of a rate hike. That decision is coming, and the markets are pretty much accept, uh, ex- um, expecting at this point a sizable hike as well. So how much of an impact is this going to have? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Sohib Shahid, who's a Director of Economic Innovation at the Conference Board of Canada. Sohib, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. How big do you think this rate hike is going to be? Well, we expect the Bank of Canada to raise rates by 50 to 75 basis points today. Uh, But we also have to remember that the bank has already raised rates by 300 basis points in less than nine months. Now, this has been the largest rate hike in years. Uh, and we also need to remember that, you know, we are not alone in this. Uh, you know, central banks around the world are also doing uh, the same. Okay, but what kind of an impact do you think this is going to have? Because as you say, we haven't done this in, in decades, right? Since, well, probably the 1980s or early 1990s. Absolutely. You know, uh, on the one hand, you know, raising rates, uh, can help lower inflation. But remember that inflation is high, not just due to high demand, but also due to supply chain disruptions, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and other supply factors. And there's nothing an interest rate hike or the Bank of Canada can do about supply side issues that are pushing inflation higher. Now, higher interest rates can also hurt indebted Canadian households because their interest payments will go up, for example, you know, in the form of higher mortgage payments. And even though House prices are coming down thanks to higher interest rates. Higher interest rates are, in fact, making housing less affordable for some Canadians, not more affordable. So the risk of raising rates too fast, too soon, is that higher interest rates you know, can slow down economic growth. And if inflation keeps rising due to supply chain disruptions, we'll be in a situation of weak growth and higher inflation, which economists like to call you know, stagflation. And this is not a situation we want the economy to be in. Yeah, are we getting close to that? Because I know that in the beginning when the rates were going up earlier this year, you know, economists felt like there was some room, right, for that to happen. But have we reached, do you think, the ceiling of that now? Well, uh, you know, what really matters is, you know, the speed with which the bank raises rates uh, and how how quickly it does it in the coming months. So we are calling for a, a rate hike today. Uh, but we believe the bank should wait and see as it moves forward, because if the bank is too aggressive, uh, you know, you know, the risk of a recession is already high. And if the bank does too much too soon going forward and remains aggressive, uh, I think the risk of a recession also grows uh, going forward. What do you think that risk is right now? Well, you know, at the Conference Board of Canada, we have a recession, uh, you know, cracking model, and uh, we believe the risk of recession is around 70%. Uh, but we also believe that uh, this number can uh, increase going forward, depending on how the Bank of Canada is acting and how aggressive it is uh, in the coming months. How aggressive do you think it needs to be? Like, what do you think needs to happen? Well, I think we need. We believe the bank should wait and see. Uh, I think the bank should be very careful not to be too aggressive right now because we need to remember that the bank can only cool down the demand side's contribution to inflation, not the supply side, as I said. Uh, and even though supply chain disruptions are easing, they're far from normal. And we're still having production difficulties in our economy. So I'm worried about, about a scenario in which the bank goes all out. And in the end, inflation is still above the bank's upper target limit of 3% due to supply factors. 
and that would increase the chances of a deep recession or even you know, stagflation, which would then increase the chance of the Bank of Canada doing a Bank of England type of move in which the Bank of England had to take a U-turn on its monetary tightening. Now, unfortunately, the Bank of Canada is faced with a stark trade-off, right? So, you know, bring inflation down or risk a recession. If the aggressive hikes continue, we might enter a recession before we're able to bring inflation below the upper target limit of 3%. So there's no easy way out. So I think the bank would uh, would stop raising interest rates well before inflation comes within target range. Right. So do you think perhaps, I know that they're going to make that announcement at 7 o'clock and then an hour later they're going to have a press conference. Do you think that the bank will signal kind of its intention, like perhaps lay out a plan similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, so you know, raising interest rates is one way the bank, uh, you know, does monetary policy. The other way is through what economists call forward guidance, which really means what the governor of the Bank of Canada says they might do going forward. So if you look at what the governor of the Bank of Canada has been saying lately, uh, it seems that uh, we are up for more rate hikes uh, in the coming uh, future. But my advice would be simply to take it slow, because if you have to raise rates any further, they do it in smaller increments and, and then wait and see. Because remember, you know, we often forget that it, it can take up to 18 to 24 months for the full impact of interest rate increases to pass through through the whole economy. So if you overdo it now, uh, there's little you can do after the fact apart from being forced to cut rates earlier than planned, which would again hurt credibility of the bank, but in a different way. So so take it slow would be the, the advice here. So, Hib, I also keep hearing about how um, job losses are out there too, right? Canada, the Canadian economy is still losing, you know, tens of thousands of jobs between May and September, including many full-time jobs. How, even though we hear about a labor shortage, how is that happening? Well, you know, that's true. You know, we job losses are happening. But if you look at the data, you see that the labor market is still very tight. Unemployment is uh, is uh, still fairly low when compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, so it's no surprise that we are seeing uh, job losses now because uh, you know, we can't, uh, you know, there's only more, the labor market can only get so more, uh, uh, only get you know, a little more tighter from where we are already. So from here onwards, I think we'll continue to see job losses. So I think what we're really keeping an eye on are the speed with which these job losses take place. Um, so uh, having said that, I think even though the recession risk is fairly high, it's really the job market, the labor market, that is really the saving grace uh, for the economy right now. But if job losses continue at a faster pace, that is when we have to be more worried. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That is Saheb Shahid, who's the Director of Economic Innovation at the Conference Board of Canada. Uh, you know, people focused on money matters and finances and the economy. Well, they are watching very closely this morning. 7 o'clock our time, the Bank of Canada will announce its latest uh, interest rate hike. It is expected to be a hike, but how much is the big question. And then they will also have a press conference an hour later to do some of what Saheb referred to there as their forward guidance, kind of giving indications of where they're planning to go in the months ahead. And all of that, of course, does filter down to us, doesn't it, at some point? Now, as I pointed out, it takes 
almost 24 months for interest rate hikes to filter through the economy. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that yet. Have your mortgage payments gone up? Have you noticed a difference? Have you had any kind of an impact? I know that people who were shopping for houses, and I've heard this anecdotally, now say that maybe they don't qualify anymore or their bank has tightened up the rules on them or something changed. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You know, every day I see the headlines on this next story and I think, what now? The consequences are coming quite deservedly so for Kanye West. I know he calls himself Yee now, but uh, the latest being Adidas dropping the artist for all of the things, the horrible things that he has been saying. And it's no surprise that's happening because it seems like every other brand has pretty much dropped him too. But boy, was this ever fast. Uh, joining us now to talk about this is Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator, host of Sirius XM's That Eric Alper. Eric, thanks for being with us this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Are do you, you think it was fast? I, I do, you know, given, I mean, everybody, I think, oh, there was a lot of patience for him leading up to about, I don't know, 10 yeah. days ago. And then 10 days ago, it just felt like everybody reached a point where they're like, nah, I'm done. Yeah, and and I think for and I think that's a really really important distinction because I think that you know for people especially on Twitter where things happen so quick um, within hours anybody could either be you know canceled or have consequences laid upon them. Um, it does take time for companies like the Gap and Adidas and his agency. CAA out of Los Angeles to go through all of the minute details of what it takes to drop somebody from their roster. There's legal ramifications. There's monetary um, modifications. And, you know, when the gap closed down um, his clothing line and and basically, you know, eliminated the website for his clothing brand that they were selling, it, you can't just shut off a website In seconds, you have, you know, so I think that once the anti-Semitic comment that Kanye West did, I I think within 24 hours, I think most of these companies, you know, started to get the the wheels in motion to do this. I think it just takes a couple of weeks sometimes for all of this stuff to happen. Yeah, I know the Adidas one is really interesting, though, and I think that's probably the one that most people are familiar with because that product line was so big for Adidas and made so much money. So they they took their time, but they also, it sounds like when you read their statement, they that may that may not be the end of that clothing, but it just not it's not going to be Kanye West clothing anymore. Yeah, and they also, you know, one of what made their statement so different was they actually listed a dollar value of how much this deal is going to be a write-off to them. Not necessarily that they're going to get it back in terms of taxes, but just how much of a loss that they're taking. And it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to yeah. $280 million. Um, and that's pretty significant because I think what they want to show is that it's not just hurtful comments that um, that are allowing Adidas to do this, that they're willing to step up um, and lose, a, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars worth of sales. This is that important to them for a company like, you know, like some fashion brands had a very wonky 
history and a reputation mm-hmm. with Nazi Germany back in the day. So I think a lot of people were looking to Adidas to say, are you still that company or are you really a brand new company? Which is strange because we always like to say that companies aren't people. Companies are just there to make money. It's it's fascinating when this stuff happens, especially from my perspective as a music industry publicist, um, on what brands start to become a little bit more human when things like this happen. That's very true. And I can't think of another musical artist that has gone through this. And I wouldn't even say these comments were, you know, I know people anti-Semitic. I'm, they're abhorrent. These are absolutely horrible I don't yeah. see any way back from this ever. Do you? Um, no, because what's interesting is that, you know, when country music star Morgan Wallen was caught on video using the N-word last year, not only was he dropped by his record label and his management and his touring company, um, uh, but radio stopped playing him, and he was removed from Spotify and Apple and iTunes playlists. That hasn't happened yet in terms of radio and in terms of, of Spotify playlisting, specifically for Kanye West. The big difference is that Kanye West has not apologized for his actions, and I think that even if he did, yeah. he wouldn't get out of this. You know, there's been a lot of celebrities that have been, quote, canceled, you know, Everybody from Billie Eilish to BTS. You're not you're not anybody until you are canceled. It seems. Um, but whatever they've done, whether it's using cultural appropriation or whether it's using language that's not appropriate anymore, or things that they've done in the past, they've always managed to apologize, even if it was written by a PR person. At least that they've owned it. Kanye West has no interest in owning um, or pulling back from what he said. He actually believes this, and I don't think that this is a mental health issue. I think he. Truly, his history has shown that this is who he is. Well, there are certainly consequences to that then, and we are seeing them now. Um, Eric, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That's Eric Alper. He's a publicist, music commentator, and host of Sirius XM's That Eric Alper, talking about what has been left, I guess, of Kanye West's career at this point. And rapidly every day, it's becoming not much. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. For the last couple of years, we've been hearing from healthcare workers that they don't feel safe in the workplace. And hopefully that is going to change with the announcement this week that there's going to be a new security model put in place across all health authorities. Let's find out more about what that is going to look like. What does that entail? Joining us now is Adrian Dix, Minister of Health for the province. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so tell me about this then. We're talking about 320 workers. How is this going to work? Well, it's across 26 sites, so uh, we are putting in place two things. One, a new model of security that involves the training of our security staff. These 320 are in addition to the staff who are already there now. They'll be focused on areas principally of hospitals. There's some non-hospitals on the list, but principally of hospitals that are um, challenging areas, principally ERs and some mental health units to ensure uh, a level of safety and, you know, an approach to de-escalate issues because nobody, once an issue arrives at a point of violence, uh, you're uh, dealing with that. But we want to be able to also have people in place experience to de-escalate issues. They'll all be Health Authority employees. And, you know, we've had this challenge for some years, as you'll be aware. Two things happened under the previous government. One, the privatization 
of security services and privatization of other services as well. We made it one hard to recruit and two uh, created some challenges. And, and twice they got rid of, Kevin Falcon actually got rid of the Occupational Health and Safety um, Agency designed to advise on these questions and to push forward new initiatives to make things safer. So we've reinstated that agency. We're working with our employees and we're, uh, we're adding these significant resources and training in order to improve security across the across 26 sites across the province. Okay, so what does the training involve then? Like what kind of situations will they have to deal with? Well, I think principally how to anticipate and de-escalate and prevent aggression. One of the challenges in hospitals is none of us go there at our best. None of us do, right? We're either dealing with, um, with some health issue, be it physical or mental, that is difficult. And the frustration sometimes when you can't get immediate response to that because your concern is always the number one concern that healthcare staff frequently have to triage concerns, right? And if someone's got a more serious concern than you do, they get to get treated first regardless of the circumstance in the healthcare system. So there are unusual system circumstances in healthcare. So we have to have an uh, issue that's trauma-informed which indicates, you know, which responds to how people act when they're affected by trauma and to work and give people uh, guidance and training in how to de-escalate incidents. There are always going to be, of course, there, there may always be incidents from time to time, of course, but we need, to, we need to have, I think, a proactive model, and that's what we're putting in place. And is this going to be at all hospitals? We've started, and this plan is for 26 sites, so it's really the major hospitals around BC. And these hospitals were identified by our teams at health authorities and by our staff teams, including the Hospital Employees Union, the BC Nurses Union, and others, as the sites that both needed most needed these models, where we see the most incidents, and to support staff. And this is really part, semi, of a broader health human resources plan. We have very significant efforts in to recruit workers, and we have been recruiting workers at an unprecedented rate. We also need to retain, and it's really important to retain workers, and that means making improvements to the quality of the worksite so that you keep your, your longest-serving workers or even your new workers uh, through a period, and that means making uh, improvements to address issues of violence. Last year, just to put it in context, uh, you know, we've seen an increase over time, really, for quite a bit longer than that. There were 721 WorkSafe loss claims due to violence and 4,400 reported incidents. If you assume that not all the incidents are reported, that's a significant number, and that affects the quality of life and quality of work of healthcare workers that we need to have there. So what is the protocol then for dealing with patients? What will these security officers be able to do? What won't they be able to do? Well, I think I think there's always going to be a role um, in hospitals for the police in certain certain circumstances. Uh, often, for example, as you know, uh, people get brought to emergency rooms who have been uh, themselves arrested and so and injured in some fashion. You know, perhaps um, related to a fight or something. So they're going to be in the hospital. They're going to be police there, and they're going to be always a role for police. But what we want is to have people in these work sites with experience in de-escalation who can anticipate and see incidents and intervene in advance of there being acts of violence and to provide necessary supports to our staff. And they're going to be receive uh, external training in addition to the sort of basic security training they would receive and in-house training, including the kind of trauma-informed training I talked about should acute, 
to equip people with the skills, the language, and the knowledge to be able to apply uh, that lens to their interaction mm-hmm. with patients. And it's important. Look, uh, this, you know, hospitals are not like all other places. As I said, all of us, when we go there, if we're caring for a family member or ourselves, um, some very good people get you know, in very difficult circumstances there. And our, our goal here is to have the staff there to support our outstanding doctors and nurses and health sciences professionals, healthcare workers in de-escalating incidents. All of them have experience in these areas. This provides some additional support to our frontline teams. Do you think, though, that this will lessen, you know, the need for police to show up in some of these situations? Because obviously that would free up some police resources. But I don't think that's the purpose of it. That may be one of the goals of it. The purpose of this is to make our, our hospital safer, to make our healthcare workers safer, and to make our patients safer. Because if an incident takes place and you're there, it's obviously very distressing in addition to whatever yeah. reason you might be in an emergency room. So the goal is to make things safer in our in our hospitals to help. And there'll be other, of course, um, advantages of that. You know, safer workplaces mean people want to stay in that workplace. Safer workplaces mean patients are safer. But the goal is safety. And if there are other benefits, that will be great. Okay. Is this new funding then? This is a, an entirely new yes. initiative. Yes. Oh, okay. So you foresee this as being permanent? Yes. All right. So are there going to be next steps involved in this program? Uh, we got to start. And so um, we're, we're going to be building out. It takes some time, as you can imagine, to, to uh, hire people and to put the models in place and to do the training. But uh, uh, the plan is in motion now. Uh, there'll be money spent in what's called this fiscal year. Sometimes we talk about that in government. Yes. It ends March 31st, right? <laughs> right. So it's not, it's not till December 31st. You know, that's not the year. March 31st is the year end uh, in, uh, in government. And uh, so, but this year, there'll be $4 million spent, and that's the first year, and then it builds out from there. So it's, it's a significant effort to change uh, the dynamic on those sites. They're not the only place where you have to have, of course, trauma-informed care. There are always very significant challenges in long-term care um, and uh, all the training and the work that goes on there. And as you know, we've made extraordinary investments to add staff to long-term care in what has been a very difficult time in that sector. It's not the only place where there are issues, but I, I think it's fair to say that having this approach, I think, will contribute uh, to making the healthcare environment safer, and uh, it also reflects us listening to groups such as the Hospital Employees Union and the BC Nurses Union who have been calling for this as well. I know, they hope so. Well, thank you so much for your time on that. Hey, anytime. Take care, Simi. You too. That's Adrian Dix, Minister of Health for BC, talking about this new funding that they are putting in place. So 320 protection services officers for healthcare workplaces. You probably saw that headline, right? But what does it mean? It means that if you work in an ER or if you go to an emergency room, that 26 different sites, whether it's the emergency room or perhaps the mental health unit of your local hospital, will have these officers, these protection services officers to protect staff and make sure people feel safe there. Uh, They're also going to include something like 14 violence prevention leads and they're going to expand funding to an organization called Switch BC. That's a new organization that is focused on addressing workplace safety. This has been an ongoing issue. We've heard a lot about this from nurses in particular who say in hospitals they were feeling unsafe and it was 
contributing to a lot of nurses just feeling burnt out, you know, PTSD, not wanting to do this anymore. So this is a step for them. And I think sooner rather than later getting that up and running, uh, we'll see what kind of a difference that makes. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com or you can call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. There it goes again. It's going up. Bank of Canada raising the key interest rate by half a percentage point this morning. And once again, they're doing this to try to tamp down that inflation, the high inflation. It remains stubbornly high. We're at about 8% right now. That's a sixth consecutive rate hike by the central bank this year. And it's definitely having an impact on the housing market. And those rates are going to stay high. So what does that mean for prices? Will they come down more than they have already? And does that mean that perhaps some reluctant people will finally decide to, okay, I was going to list this eventually anyway, let's just do it. Well, let's talk more about those predictions. Brendan Ogmanson joins us now, the BC Real Estate Association's chief economist. Good morning, Brendan. Morning, good to be here. What kind of an impact has these increasing rates had on the housing market so far? Well, a pretty significant one. So we we tend to see really interest rate sensitive sectors like housing get impacted first before the broader economy. So we look at the the housing market in Vancouver, sales are about 45% lower than they were this time last year. They're about 30% lower than just what's normal for this time of year. Uh, And prices have come down 5 to 10% from where they peaked in February. Okay, so we're still kind of struggling through that. So what do you think then about this latest rate hike? Well, the banks did a really good job signaling how aggressive they're going to be, and, and that signaling gets priced into fixed mortgage rates. So we've, we've already seen uh, five-year fixed mortgage rates above 5% for quite some time now, and that means with the added stress test, a buyer needs to qualify over 7%, and that has a really big impact on the market. So we've, we've been seeing... Uh, the impact of of planned rate hikes for the past several months. Uh, this will, of course, impact people with variable rate mortgages as as well, uh, especially if they're going to be triggered into uh, into uh, uh, making extra payments because they they hit a threshold on their their uh, trigger rate. Um, so we we've seen the impacts already. I think we're probably right now at about the lows for for sales activity. But as long as rates stay at elevated levels, we're going to have very slow sales activity over the next year. And do you think that means that some people are just staying on the sidelines? Like if they thought we're thinking about selling their house, maybe they're just going to wait and see what happens. Yeah, we've, we've certainly seen a pullback in, in sellers. So active listings, so the, the total inventory of homes for sale in the market in Vancouver seems to have stalled out in the last few months. And new listings are, are below average, too. So we're not seeing sellers that are really motivated to, uh, to, to sell, um, you know, the un- unemployment rate's still low. The economy's still actually growing at a pretty significant rate. We do expect things to slow substantially, but right now things are actually still pretty good. Um, so we might see as the economy slows, we might see as, as unemployment rises, you tend to get uh, an increase in, in, in resale inventory. Mm-hmm. And then on the, on the, on the sales side, you know, it, it's really hard for a lot of people to qualify at 7.5%, so that's going to keep demand on the sidelines for a while. Is there a disconnect, do you think, between what people expect to pay right now versus what people want to sell for? 
Yeah, there always is when when markets turn and, and turn this fast. So uh, I always like to think you know, uh, sellers are, are kind of have their expectations anchored to the most you know, to the highest price they they heard over the past six months, and and buyers are like immediately updating their expectations about about prices. And it just takes a while for those those two expectations to kind of meet in the middle, uh, which is why prices tend to be pretty sticky uh, generally. Uh, and, and so, you know, once you get prices that are, are kind of settling at a certain level, I think we're, we're close to there now, we'll maybe start to see those transactions occur mm-hmm. at a slightly higher rate. But it's really all about interest rates. And as long as interest rates are this high, demand is going to be very low or, or sales are going to be low. The demand right. is there. So it's hard to, hard to change, you know, uh, make, you know, turn that demand into sales activity. Right. You were saying that you think that we're close to having those prices settle. So how far off the peak are we here? Like how, how far do you think prices have come down in the last year? In, in uh, greater Vancouver, uh, about five to 10% from February prices peaked uh, in February in other markets. Um, you know, the Fraser Valley kind of Chilliwack markets prices are down closer to 15 to 20% from peak. That's a lot. There's just, it is a lot. There's a real phenomenon um, uh, in, in a lot of markets where prices went up a lot in markets outside of large cities uh, and in, it's those markets where we're seeing prices uh, come down more in the last in the last six months. But you know, keep in mind that our, you know, home prices in in the Fraser Valley went up about sixty percent during the pandemic. So they've given back some of that, uh, but but not uh, not all of it. Okay. So then, what do you think? What can people expect then? Do you think heading into the spring for this? Uh, you know, it's interesting. The Bank of Canada noted they expect the economy to stall in the first and second quarters. So we, we could be in a situation where the Canadian economy is in a recession uh, in the spring. Uh, usually spring is a strong market for housing. But uh, if we're in a recession and you know, uh, uh, unemployment rate is rising and generally the economy is, uh, is contracting, we probably will have a slower uh, spring. We're expecting uh, pretty slow activity all through 2023 for the housing market. But uh, housing tends to lead the business cycle. So housing starts to fall first before the rest of the economy. Uh, and then as we are kind of entering a recession and you know, the housing market tends to lead the economy out of a recession. So as you know, the big reason why that happens is because interest rates will come down. So it's really hard to see the Bank of Canada not pivoting and starting to cut rates next year if we're in a situation where inflation is coming down uh, and the economy is in recession, uh, the bank's going to be uh, lowering rates and that should spur more activity and set mm. up a strong 2024. So you're feeling that right now we're probably in a more careful area when it comes to these interest rate hikes because they've already done the big ones. Yeah, you know, we're, I think we're pretty close to where the Bank of Canada is going to stop and, and then we'll be probably forced to start cutting rates in 2023. I would guess they'll stop at between four and four point two five percent. So, you know, one or two more rate hikes. That's a, that's a those are really big moves in a very short period of time. And I think it's it's a good idea to, to for the bank to at least stop and see what the impact of those rates are on the economy and see if they're having the desired effect. The worst case scenario is that we are both in an economy that is contracting and where inflation is still staying stubbornly high. So that will make it much more difficult for the bank to to lower rates. But I think generally, you know, the way economies tend to work, if the the economy is slowing or in recession, inflation comes down pretty fast. And I expect that's what's going to happen over the next year. Okay, so then what kind of advice, Brendan, would you have to people who were hoping to get into the market? 
it's going to be difficult over the next over the next year. So, you know, if you're going to qualify at seven and a half percent, that means a very large down payment and and uh, and significant incomes for for uh, a lot of homes in the Lower Mainland. Um, there is way way less urgency in the market than there has been the last two years. So you can really take your time. There's more choice. So there are some some benefits. Uh, but the qualifying side is going to be going to be very difficult. Uh, although I do expect that you know 2024 we're going to have a much stronger market. Oh boy, that seems so far away, though, doesn't it? It does. It does. <laughs> That's two years away. Uh, Brendan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. That is Brendan Ogmanson, BCREA's chief economist. That's a BC Real Estate Association talking about the impact of the latest rate hike on the housing market. So, if you were shopping around. You now have to qualify. You qualify at a higher rate than what is posted, right? So you have to qualify yourself at a seven percent mortgage rate, which is very difficult for a lot of people. You know, when the interest rates were in that area before, prices were lower. So it really puts, I think, a lot of potential buyers in an untenable position. Now, if you've had a story, if you've been shopping, or you know, for you know, getting into the market for a home and did this change things for you? Or maybe you were thinking about selling and this changed things for you. You thought, you know what, I'm not going to get the price that I want to get for my house. Uh, tell us your story. Send me at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. But definitely when it comes to the housing market, I do feel like things are just kind of in a state of waiting right now, right? Trying to figure out which way things are going to go. Prices are coming down, but in some areas, like look at Vancouver, Surrey, probably not enough for people. Whereas in the Valley, as Brendan pointed out, you're seeing much bigger price drops. Maybe maybe that's an option for more people too. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. UBC researchers making news this week. And listen, Canadian men need to pay attention. Their findings are that nearly half of Canadian men are at risk of depression. Let's find out why that is. Joining us now is Dr. John O'Grudnichuk, who's a professor and director of the psychotherapy program at the University of British Columbia and one of the authors of this study. He led it. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, thanks for having me. How do you determine something like this? Like, where do you start? Well, I think it starts with recognizing, you know, maintaining the status quo when it comes to men's mental health isn't working. You know, suicide is one of the leading causes of death amongst men. And, you know, it's really uh, tantamount to a public health crisis, but we're not talking about it and we're not doing much about it. So we have to look at it in a different way, hence looking at men's mental health in the workplace. And how do we do that then? Well, first of all, we need to kind of take the temperature of men's health in the workplace. You know, where where are things at? And, you know, look at factors related to mental health, get perspectives of what the workers themselves feel that they need with regard to supporting their health in the workplace. And only once we do that, we can look at the steps that we need to take to move forward. And these are men we're talking about who are in the workplace and they, they talk about this. So that would that tell you then that we've got some real depression issues happening? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, to be honest, I was shocked. Uh, you know, I expected to see relatively high levels, but not quite at the levels that that we saw. So, you know, what it's saying to me is that we've got some pretty serious issues that we need to start addressing. Okay, so does that mean that more workplaces need to pay attention to this? Absolutely. How? 
Well, first of all, I think, you know, there needs to be a lot more conversations. And we were hearing this from the respondents to the survey is that they want more conversations about mental health in the workplace. And, you know, that might strike people as uh, in contrast to what they normally think, well, men don't want to talk about mental health. But the men are saying we want more conversations about this. We need more education in the workplace uh, by employees and and managers of, of staff around signs of mental health challenges what to do when those signals arise and and making you know pathways to services and resources known and available to people. So do you think that is the big hold up here is that we do still have this stereotype of men as not wanting to talk about it? I think so. You know, there are a lot of guys that are out there that, you know, they know something's not right. They may not know exactly what it is, but they know they're they're not as well as they can or should be. And they kind of get stuck. And, you know, there's a few barriers in place. One of them is kind of this socialized aspect. You know, real men, you know, they tough it out. They don't show any vulnerability. Uh, they don't let people know that they might be struggling. But also it's about information and knowledge. And it's like, where do we even go? Where do we even start this journey? And that's the thing, right? Like they don't know where to reach out to. They might not understand the idea of even going to therapy. That might not be appealing to them. Is it as simple as saying like just doing a, a mental health check-in and saying, how are you doing? Absolutely. And, and you know, that's the part about, you know, educating uh, managers of, of employees. You know, it's it's also their responsibility to make sure their their staff is is doing well and and when you notice somebody's not their normal self it, you know it's incumbent upon them to say hey bob you know you don't seem like your normal self is everything okay you know a simple a simple question like that can open up a very important conversation right and so your study says that nearly half of canadian men are at risk of depression so what are those risk factors that you saw well, there's a lot, and, and you know, it's, it, it, if I want to make sure we don't extrapolate too far beyond what our, our findings are saying. It's those that, are, you know, re- replied to our survey uh, about half, so I don't want to say that all Canadian, or, you know, half of all Canadian men, but nevertheless, you know, some of the risk factors that we were finding, a big one is loneliness. You know, 55% of the the respondents indicated that they felt lonely. Loneliness is a huge risk factor for depression. Uh, Another aspect, you know, we found that 35% of the people who responded dreaded going into work. So this is a place where most adults are spending the majority of their waking hours. And if you're dreading going there, you can just imagine what that does to a person's psyche. And so this would benefit, as you put it as well, like all managers and companies and businesses, because it's hard enough these days to keep workers, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think what everyone wants, every human being, you know, we all want to be treated with respect and dignity, valued for not only what we can do, but who we are. And, you know, when when workplaces can actually you know, treat employees with that dignity, respect, show genuine care and put in place the measures that they're able to to help their workers thrive. They're not only going to do better in their work role, but they're going to do better in their life roles and ultimately be better contributors to society. Something certainly for workplaces to think about. Uh, Thank you so much for your time this morning. 
Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. John Agrodnachuk, who's the professor and director of the psychotherapy program at the University of British Columbia. He led this study that talked about Canadian men, asked them questions about how they were feeling. And what they found was that nearly half of Canadian men are at risk of depression. One in three reported thoughts of suicide or self-harm. And they said there is a serious gap that remains in the availability of mental health care, particularly through the workplace and reaching out to men.